sort of rift and they just dropped that part of the name. Really? That's yeah. <laughs> so funny. Yeah. That's so funny. Jenks Willink. That's just the mythology. Though. Yeah. I don't know if it's really true or not. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are rolling into another episode of the Candace Owens Show. We are going to start this one a little bit differently. I am going to read from a children's book. Here we go. How could a little boy ever be a man? How could the little prince ever make a stand? So just when the prince thought he was over and done, he picked up the note and it said, To my son. He took a deep breath and opened the note he had found, and this is what his father, the king, had written down. To my son, if you are reading this now, it means I am gone, and you are the one that must carry on. Our kingdom is now what you must save, and to do that, you have to be brave. I know what you think, you don't know what to do, but remember that I was once a little boy too. I was also small and had fear in my heart, and I didn't even know where to start. I couldn't imagine going over the hill to face the dragons that wanted to kill. But don't worry, son, you will be just fine. You can keep these things in your mind. The dragons, they aren't really that big at all. It is only in our minds that we make them so tall. Inside our brains, things always get overblown, especially things that are completely unknown. But when fear settles in and gets a hold of you, here are some things that you simply must do. Stand up straight and hold your head high and look at your fears right in the eye. Don't look away and don't try to hide. Know that you have great strength deep inside. When you stand up and go into the fray, you will feel your fears start to go away. And though there will be horror, you will feel the things you are scared of are no big deal. I am reading this uh, from a book entitled Mikey and the Dragons, and across from me sits the author, Jocko Willink. Welcome to The Candace Owens Show. Thanks for having me on. Uh, this is so timely, so I'm going to tell you why this is timely, because I'm just in the midst of a lot of things that have to do with children's books and novels and um, boys not being fearful. Um, I was actually watching, I got super emotional watching a World War II documentary. It's like colorized on Netflix right now. Do you know what I'm talking about? I don't know the specific documentary, but I spend a lot of my time exploring and studying and reading about and watching films and literature about war all the time. Yes. Netflix had this incredible opportunity to colorize World War II. So they took all the old films and they just added color to them and it totally changes it. It's incredible. Just adding color because you can really see the faces of the soldiers and they start talking about the stories and they have World War II vets, um, you know, talking about Midway and um, there's decisions that these these young boys literally knew they were going to die. Um, and in one particular moment, it, they're talking about how some of them were crying on the way um, you know, to Omaha Beach because the English Channel was just so up and down. They were getting seasick and how one uh, person in particular was crying for his mother um, because he was so sick. And then um, for mid the Battle of Midway, flying into Midway, how a, a person that was leading um, that squadron literally knew that they were they were going out of gas, that there was no way they were going to be able to get back. Um, but they knew that the entire the country was on the line and that was it. And I was looking at these pictures of these, these boys and I was saying, my goodness, um, they just look different. You know, they look different than the 18-year-olds, the 20-year-olds, the 22-year-olds that we're producing today. Um, and the amount of, um, you know, strength that they had and, and character that they had, uh, knowing that they were going on these missions and they could potentially never see their homeland again, especially if you were one of the Americans that landed on Omaha Beach. Um, and today we have uh, 
boys that are fearful um, when they have to hear a conservative come speak on their campus. There's there are riots uh, because Ben Shapiro is coming to speak on campus. This is this is this is real life, right? This is real life. This is actually Welcome to America today. Mm-hmm. Um, and these people that protest me because there's a black conservative coming on campus and they see this as a real threat. And um, and I just I worry that. Um, we're not teaching leadership um, we're any, anymore in this society. We're not teaching what it means to be a man, what it means to stand up tall. Um, so I think you're a perfect person uh, for me to drop all of my anxieties on. Well, thank you. <laughs> I, I definitely appreciate all your anxieties. And I'll, I'll assuage those maybe a little bit. You know, first of all, I still work with the military and in all branches of the military. I'm telling you what, there are young young kids that are 18, 19, 20 years old that signed up in a time of war and they know what's at risk and they are willing to take that risk and willing to make that sacrifice if they have to. I also have a leadership consulting company where I work with companies all over the country and and the same thing. You know, we're talking construction companies, power companies, uh, manufacturing companies, companies where people are out doing really hard jobs. And guess what? There's young kids, 18, 19, 20 years old, that are up in those uh, up in those power lines, getting things fixed, up on those high rises, building, you know, laying steel out. So there's plenty of Americans. And I know that you, you know, and I said this to Ben Shapiro when I was on his show. You, you, you guys exist at ground zero for you know, bringing around people that you're going to look at and say, well, this doesn't seem like the type of person that I would want to carry on the traditions of this great nation. <laughs> that's where that's where you all live. And fortunately for me, I live in a world where I work with real people. You know, I don't speak on colleges, college. Oh, I, I can't say I don't. I, I have spoken on college campuses. You know, and I, when I go to speak to college campuses, a lot of times I'm speaking to the ROTC people. And guess what? Mm. There's a bunch of kids in there, male and female, that are willing to step up and burden the, the or shoulder the burden of, of freedom. So I, I think you get a little bit of, um, you, you get a little bit trapped in the world right. where you're surrounded by that, but I, I'll let you know that there's, there's still really strong Americans out there at every age. Okay. So I guess you know what it is. We're probably more in the cultural space. And sometimes if you're, you know, in combination from seeing everything that you're seeing on TV, where it's almost encouraged for men to be less manly, you know, you, you see the stuff, the, the phrases, toxic masculinity, um, you know, commercials that are promoting, uh, saying men wrestling when they're kids is an early sign um, of toxic masculinity. You got to, you know, you know, you saw the Gillette commercial, this sort of stuff where it's becoming, I guess, more of a normalized discussion, more of a mainstream discussion mm-hmm. that being a man is wrong. And then you couple that with me going to, onto college campuses and you've got these boys and they're like, you know, in tears because they don't understand how you can be black and conservative. And I'm just going like, what's going on? Because I grew up very different. So I, I, I grew up in sort of the environment that you're talking about where my dad was a plumber, did everything with his hands. My granddad, you know, sharecropper. So he does everything by himself. I was learned. I mean, I could, anything in the house I can do. I'm telling you, I am like, I'm almost a man in the house. Like, I'm like, you want me to wire, uh, you know, I, I can wire electrics. I, I will get lighting done anything because I just was raised like we didn't have money to be like, oh, you have an issue, call this person, figured it out. So when I see people now and I see this this sort of softening of guys that are coming up, and even when I was dating before I got married, mm-hmm. it just was it was different. You know, tons of guys have never seen a screwdriver, and I'm like, what's going on here? Um, but maybe it is a sign of a, a particular uh, group, like, you know, the, I guess the, uh, I don't want to say educated because I think it is educated to be able to know how to run your house, but more of the um, the institutionalization of education yeah, the, that we're the seeing academia, a different, perhaps. yeah, the academia. Yeah, I think you could you could probably say that, but like I said, I mean, every time like when you go home, someone built that house, mm-hmm. you know, someone built that car, someone ran that wiring that gets to your house, and those are well, 
I'm not going to say they're all men, but they're 99% men that are linemen, you know, linemen up, moving wires. Those are, those are men. Right. And they, they still work every day. And like I said, I work with all these different companies and, and they're out there getting after it. There's nothing soft about that job and there's nothing soft about those people. Right, exactly. But would you, would you acknowledge that there is a bit of a war on those kinds of people culturally? It might be. I, I would have a hard time classifying it as a war because – what what kind of a war are those people going to bring? What kind of war are those people going to bring against the, the uh, actual people that deliver power to their house and deliver food? You know, let's not forget about the farmers that are out there. You know, this country and even California. I pointed this out the other day. You know, California is is a massive state of agriculture, and there's all kinds of people out there. That's what they do. They they turn the earth. They deliver food. So I guess if there's people that think that they want to lash out against the people that actually provide energy and produce and food and beef and I mean everything. I don't think that's going to be a great war for them to, right. to fight. <laughs> yeah, and that's totally true. And that and that's sort of like that coastal mentality where because they're they are the ones that go on to become the writers, they can sort of inspire this whole cultural conversation about things that are like, guys, this is basic necessity stuff. Like, what are we even arguing about? Of course, we need men. Of course, we need farms. Of course, we need, uh, you know, people working in in, in the coal industry. Like, all of these things are so needed. And because we're so in the intellectual battle of it all, I'm like, am I going crazy, or is society just going down down the drain? Yeah. No. And and I guess to your point. To support your your conjecture, you know, I ended up writing the first kids' books that I wrote. They're called Way of the Warrior Kid, and they're about kid, you know, a young kid that's having the same kind of problems that every normal kid has. You know, he doesn't know his times tables. He, he can't do any pull-ups. He doesn't know how to swim, and he's getting picked on by the school bully. And so he goes home from his last day of school. He's all sad. He's crying. And when he gets home, he remembers that his Uncle Jake is coming to stay with him for the summer. And his uncle Jake was in the SEAL teams. And so when he, when this young kid, Mark, tells his uncle about all the problems that he's having, his uncle says, look, we can solve these problems if you're willing to be disciplined, if you're willing to commit, if you're willing to do hard work. So he says, yes, they spend the summer working out, eating good food, learning how to study, studying, training jujitsu, and working. That's what he spends his summer doing. And he becomes a better human being because of it. And so that's... You know, to your point, that's one of the reasons that I wrote that series of books and continue to write that series of books is because when I went to go and buy books for my kids and I've got three girls and one boy, there was very few books that really kind of had the values in them that I wanted my kids to have. So, so yes, to your point, I wrote those books. Right. And, and there is, and I will say this, there's a hostility almost towards people that um, are, that work in trade. You know what I mean? People that work with their hands, people that can fix your air conditioning that you can't survive off of because it goes off, right? In, in the middle of the summer, uh, people that can fix your heater, let, you know, let it be dead of winter and your heater goes off and, you know, nobody is suddenly an environmentalist about, you know, oil and all this stuff in, in at which actually somebody called, a professor called someone out on that in, in, at Oxford University because they were demanding that they divest um, from some oil company. And he was like, hey, listen, we can start from the beginning. It's winter right now. Let's turn off all the heat on campus. And the kids were like, no, <laughs> no, no way, right? Because they don't understand that a lot of these privileges that were afforded when you look around society and you see these big buildings and you, and, and you look at these beautiful housings and these uh, and, and you look and you walk into your home and it's warm is because of the work of people that are working with their hands. Um, so I think what you do is so important. And before, by the way, for people that are listening, before we even started, somebody, um, a, a kid that was 15 years old, I believe, mm -hmm. came up and was so excited to see you. And he said that you've, you know, you've really 
really I asked him, why do you why do you like Jocko? And he said, because you taught him work ethic um, and, and the meaning of doing the small tasks um, that turn into the big tasks that make you a bigger person. So I want to get into a little bit of your story and what what created the man, what created that perspective? Where did where does this begin for you? So I grew up in a small New England town, and I joined – ever since I was a little kid, I wanted to be some kind of commando. Whereabouts New England? Uh, Connecticut. Me too. I know. I know. Uh, and and that's, so that's where I grew up. And, and as you know, not many people in, in Connecticut join the military, right? It's just, not, it's just not a very popular thing to do. Well, I wanted to be some kind of commando. Ever since I was a little kid, I was putting camouflage paint on my face and running around the woods with making every – stick or broom into some kind of machine gun like that was me as a kid and the cool thing is I never had to grow up because I went straight in the military and you know ended up going in the SEAL teams and that's where I spent my adult life and so it was a great life you know and being in the SEAL teams you're around disciplined people for the most part uh, not not everyone's perfect it's not a bunch of Terminator robots they're still human beings with you know their own flaws and agendas and personalities and idiosyncrasies. So there's a, bu- a bunch of human beings in the SEAL teams. It's not robots. But, you know, for me, it was a great place to be. And I had an incredibly blessed career. I was very lucky with everything that I did. I was very lucky to move through the ranks. I, I went from being an enlisted guy to becoming an officer, which meant I moved into more of a leadership position. Once I was in a leadership position, I was lucky enough and blessed enough to have the opportunity to lead troops in combat in Iraq. And so that really shaped just my experience in the SEAL teams really shaped who who I am, and that's kind of where, you know, I was kind of raised in the SEAL teams. You know, I was I was you know 18 years old when I joined, but that's that's where I got a lot of my my a lot of my work ethic and philosophy from. And part of that is because I wasn't naturally good at anything. Like I wasn't the best athlete. I wasn't the strongest. I wasn't the fastest. I wasn't the best shot. So what I had to do was work hard. And that's how I made up the delta between, you know, being a failure and being decent. And then luckily enough, you know, like I said, moved into a leadership position. And, and that's where I really was something that I thought, okay, I can do this pretty good. And that's what I focused on. Right. So uh, can you take me through just what a typical day, and I know it changes obviously if you guys have operations, but what is a typical structure of a day like for a SEAL? What time uh, are you waking up? What are you doing? It. it yeah, you're right. It changes a lot. Here's the basic structure. Best day ever. Every day is awesome. <laughs> you work with the best guys. Your job is awesome. Shoot machine guns, blow things up, jump out of airplanes. I used to joke around because, you know, you get paid, you know, you're in the military. And for me, it was great, great pay. And, you know, you're making $70,000 a year. And I was, you know, 30 four years old. And I'd be walking around the team area and I'd tell someone like, I'm 34 years old. I make 70 grand a year and I'm not wearing a shirt because, you know, we just would, you know, just, and it's awesome. You get paid to work out in the morning. So it's a great life. You're hanging around with great people. And, and by the way, all this comes with the caveat of if you like this kind of thing, because if you don't like being cold, wet, miserable, losing sleep, not being able to sleep, uh, then you were not going to like this. And then obviously I was, I joined in 1990. And so it wasn't until September 11th that that we were at war. And then that added a whole new aspect of what it means to be a SEAL because now we were going to go fight. And I was actually, people are always surprised by this. I was in the, I was in the SEAL teams for 13 years before I ever shot my weapon at the enemy. So the rest of that time I was just training and we were training as hard as we could to be prepared. But then once September 11th happened, everything changed. And so again, best job in the world. But you have to recognize the fact that if that's your job, 
there's two things that you're going to be doing or two aspects of that job that are very unique to being in the SEAL teams. And that is one, your job is to kill people. And so you have to be, you have to overcome that sort of human ideal of thou shall not kill because you're going to kill. And then the other thing is you have to realize that people are going to be trying to kill you and they may succeed in killing you and they may succeed in killing your friends and you've got to be able to be ready for that. Mm, so that takes a tremendous amount of mental strength. Absolutely. And preparedness to be able to say, this is what I'm committed to, knowing that the person next to me. And that's what I was really getting at in watching the, this World War One, World War Two. And I, these were these people were not prepared, by the way. They weren't spending years in army training. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was like, this was bare bottoms, like getting trying to get things together, um, having, people were learning to fly six months before they were going out For on sure. missions, right? So this was, uh, it was different. Um, and that spirit, you know, it, was, it, just, it just really hit me through the screen when I was looking at these faces and I was going, my goodness, these are people that are fighting to protect so I can enjoy the luxury of sitting here and hosting a podcast, right? They're fighting to defend this nation. Um, and there are people that are hostile to them. I mean, it just, it just kind of really, it smacks me in my face in a way. For some reason in color, I've watched so many, I'm so into world documentaries, but for some reason in color, to see how young they were and to, and to look at their faces and to just realize, um, you know, frostbite, Battle of the Bulge at Antwerp, uh, the frostbite, holding a line uh, against against um, the Nazis and people's uh had to sever their hands and feet because they were getting frostbite in the winter and they, they just didn't have the proper clothing for that. And those are our boys. Those are our American boys. Um, and uh, so I, I think that to know that they're, that you come home from that and you decide to then dedicate yourself to really kind of helping to raise everybody else's kids in a way by creating books and letting boys know from, you know, from, from a young age that you're going to have fears. That's a part of life. That, that's what I like about this Mikey and the Dragons. Mikey's freaking out about everything, right? And then his dad's sort of like, hey, Mikey, fear is normal, right? But you got you to embrace your fears and you have to go forward. So what inspired you to sort of start this, this let, starting to write books and starting to, especially towards children? I'm really interested in the children's books. Yeah, so, so my, I have four kids and one, I remember one day, I was talking to one of my kids, I think it was my oldest daughter, um, and in my mind, you know, I was still in the SEAL teams and I was dealing with some issue at work with like something was going on, there's something going on in Afghanistan, we need to get people prepared, we're running them through special training, whatever. But it's a pretty big deal, you know, and I come home and my daughter tells me something that happened at school and I don't even remember what it was and of course I'm sitting there looking at her like what do you I can't believe this is a problem this is pathetic this is this is nothing and then I you know what I tell people to do all the time is you know you got to detach and see things from other people's perspective and as I'm looking at her thinking you're you're pathetic for thinking that this is a problem I'm thinking to myself oh yeah wait a second this problem that she's talking about is her whole world right she's in fourth grade or fifth grade and a, a, a student making fun of her or a teacher giving her a sour look, that's a big deal. And that's the way it is, right? When you're a little kid, your world is as big as your world is, and it's not very big. And those problems that you have are the biggest things in the world. And they weigh as heavily on, you know, that problem weighed as heavily on my daughter as as a problem that that I had at work with guys going to Afghanistan. It's the same weight. It's just, it's just she's smaller, hasn't learned how to deal with it yet. So... There, there was also – so there, there was that and there's also the fact that, you know, the things that I learned in the SEAL teams served me very well. And I realized that when I taught some of these things to my kids, they were very helpful. Case in point, the first Warrior Kid book, the kid doesn't know his times tables 
and he thinks he's stupid. This is this is a story directly from my oldest daughter who came home from school in fourth grade or whatever and said, I'm stupid. And I said, well, why do you think that? And she says, I don't know my times tables. And I said, well, how long have you studied? And she gave me, you know, the tilted head look of what do you mean? How, how long did I study? And here, bad father award. I, she didn't know that she had to actually study to know her times tables. And so I said, she said, What's, what do you mean study? And I said, yeah, you got to make flashcards and you got to write them down and you got to flip them over and you got to study them and then you'll know them. And so I sat there, got out some index cards, gave her the index cards, said, here's, here's how you make, make flashcards. She made flashcards and in an hour, she knew her entire times tables. But she didn't know that. And she didn't understand that you have to put in work if you're going to be successful. Mm. And so it was those kind of things as I started connecting the dots of what had been helpful that I learned in the SEAL teams. Because as I told you earlier, I wasn't the smartest. I wasn't the fastest. I wasn't the strongest. I had to work hard. And that's the way life is. You got to work hard if you're going to do well. And there's very few people that get every gift that you could possibly want to be successful. In fact, I'll go ahead and tell you that there's no one that gets every gift that they want. But sure, there's some people that are better in some areas than other areas, but they've got a weakness somewhere and they have to work to compensate for that. So raising my kids, being around my kids, seeing what I learned in the SEAL teams and how that was applicable to my kids and helping them in their lives, that's what made me decide to write these books. You know what? And it's interesting is what you just said is really talking about perspective, right? So she comes home with the problem. You're like, toughen up. And you're like, wait a second, wait a second. She doesn't know any better. And and um, and the problem with that, though, and, and again, I'm just dropping my anxiety on you. Why not? Let's just do an Bring hour of therapy for Candace. <laughs> the problem with that is that this, this leads you back to the idea that it's in times of tremendous peace that weak men – you know, weak men are allowed to step, you know, are produced because it's, there's nothing for them to be anxious about. There's nothing, they haven't lived through anything. So everything seems like the biggest problem in the world. Like, and this is why we get to the society where people are freaking out about like bathroom signs, right? Like, oh my God, like it's not welcoming enough the bathroom sign. And I'm like, that is a sign of your remarkable privilege that you think this is a problem. Go speak to somebody who lived during the Great Depression, someone who lived through World War One, somebody who lived through segregation. Go speak to anybody else. If you've gotten to the point where you are now lobbying to change the signs from saying male and female, you you are just remarkably privileged, right? And so that it's, it still makes me fearful because I'm like, maybe it's just a sign of the times. Like what we're seeing now and the arguments people are having, and this arguments, this is high up now. These arguments are making in Congress, right? They're making it to Congress of like, should we systematically put tampons in male restrooms because other some men feel like they're women or whatever it is? And, and by the way, that was approved. It's happening, okay? So it's like, it, it is kind of our reality in a weird way. And it's because I think we're so detached from um, real struggle life and, and uh, real struggle and real pain. I always say that conservatism is actually very natural. In times of real struggle, no one debates stupid stuff, right? It's about sense and sensibility. Um, how am I going to feed How am I going to feed my children? How am I going to feed myself? How am, I, how am I going to provide for my family? And, it's, and then when you get this more leftist perspective, that, that can only really exist and can only really breed in times of peace and remarkable privilege. I would say you are correct. So I'm and right to be anxious. Yeah, Thanks, you're Doug. right to l- a little bit anxious. <laughs> that being said... I mean, and again, you live in this world. I don't really live in this world, right? I, well, I don't live in the world of all this political stuff all the time. And so the fact, you know, like, oh, I hear it on the news that that they're going to have whatever men's and women's bathrooms combined in this stuff. And I'll go to a restaurant and there'll be, what is it, uh, multi-gender? What do they call it? it? All different things. Sometimes it's like a preamble. To... But, but no, just the name of a bathroom. It... That, they'll have a man and a woman on it, right? Right, They'll have yeah. both. Yeah, and I... so I'll go, oh, that must be that thing. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. But it must be that thing. Yeah, it must be uh... that thing that they're talking about. And so you're right. When And I've, I've said before, one of 
one of the moments in time where I realized, hey, I'm providing a pretty good life for my kids was when like the biggest complaint I would get from my daughters would be that they didn't have five bars of Wi-Fi in their bedroom, right? While they're doing their homework and the internet was a little bit slow. I'm saying, okay, I'm doing a pretty good job. (laughs) But I also realized- this parenting thing. But I also realized, oh, oh, hold on. If they think that's a problem, I need to introduce them to real problem. And, you know, when it comes right down to it, you know, on, on my podcast, I talk about, you know, it's a podcast about human nature, but it's really about human nature as revealed through war and suffering and human atrocities. And so I, I hear that all the time. I mean, I, I just had a woman on who was an Auschwitz, an Auschwitz survivor. And, you know, she's on there. I think she had 150 people in her extended family and she was from Czechoslovakia, 150 people in her extended family and there were three survivors, her and her two sisters. Um, the, the Going through that podcast with her and it was one of these slippery slopes where I, I, I was saying to her like, okay, so because it was, hey, you know, she lived in Czechoslovakia and it was like, okay, um, by the way, Jews now, you know what? You're going to have to go ahead and, and be in your houses by six o'clock. And they're like, well, Okay. And then it was, okay, Jews, you know what? Now your kids aren't allowed to come to school anymore. And they're like, okay. And then it was, hey, by the way, you're not allowed to have your businesses anymore. They came in and took all their businesses. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. And and then it was one day, it was, okay, get your bags, get a bag and come to the school. We're going to take you to a train station. And, and even that, you know, we all know what the outcome of the story is, but I said to myself, okay, so there's still, there was a, like some level of humanity. It was, it was, hey, you know, get a bag, get packed, get some precious things. Don't worry, but we need you to come over here. And it wasn't until the three days after three days being packed in a cattle car, the door opens up the, the, they say, welcome to Auschwitz. And they, you know, this, this woman, Rose Schindler gets out of the, gets out of the, first of all, she was lucky. Someone told her, tell them that you're 18. Because if she said she was 14, which is what she was, it was immediate gas chambers. You're dead in six minutes. She, she lied, said she was 18. She went with her two older sisters. They go into a room and this is a girl. She's 14 years old. It's whatever. It's 1943 or 1944. She's never, she's never been naked in front of strangers because she's a 14 year old girl in 1943. She gets told, okay, take off all your clothes. And then in come the women to shave their entire bodies. And I said to her, I was like, oh, so that's when you knew that there was no more humanity here. It was over. And then, you know, you proceed to hear her story. So hearing stories, like I I did a podcast on the Rwandan genocide, which again, 800,000 Tutsis killed by Hutus in 100 days with machetes, mostly. And what was really harrowing about that scenario is that in order, if you and I knew each other, or if, if I saw you, The only way for me, like we speak the same language, we look the same, we have the same religion, and the only way that I could know that you were a Tutsi would would be to actually know you. That's the way I would know. So what that means is when they were killing these, when the Hutus were killing, they were doing it to people that they, they knew. And so when it comes to, hey, are we too privileged? Is it easy to, is it easy to see the world through a lens of just how nice things are? Absolutely. And again, that's why for me, that's one of the reasons that I think people listen to my podcast a lot. I hear that feedback all the time 
when it comes to looking at the world in a way to say, hey, you know what? We actually have it pretty good right now, and maybe we should look at some of the fundamental elements that got us here, and we should maintain some of those fundamental elements. Yeah, I, th- I think it's, you know, I think suffering, and not extreme suffering, of course, I'm not talking about like the Rwandan genocide, the Holocaust, but I think a little bit of suffering is good. You know, it, 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 it creates character because it gives you perspective. Um, and it's so important to have perspective when you go through life. And I find, you know, for me, I used to complain all the time about the fact that I grew up poor. My dad was an alcoholic. My mother was abusive. Me and my sisters lived through horrific things, right? And now that I'm an adult, I'm, I'm super grateful for that because it gave me a perspective all throughout life that when I looked around people who had lived through nothing and I watched them freak out and have meltdowns, I, I genuinely felt like I was an alien visiting a, a planet. You know, I, I really did. I met my, one of my closest girlfriends after, after college, and I will never forget this. Her dad, we, we moved to New York. I was literally sleeping on a couch. You know, I couldn't afford. My parents didn't pay for anything. I you know, I had loans. Um, I'm sleeping on a couch. I'm like sleeping in, in, basically in a closet. Um, and my girlfriend, her dad got an apartment right in uh, Midtown, New York, and great life. And her dad called her and said that after the first year from paying for the apartment, um, he was going to decrease um, paying by 25% every six years. So she was, he was going from 100% to 75%, 75% to 50%. Um, I think every six months he was going to do. And she had a meltdown like I had never seen. And she was, and, and I looked at her and I was, realizing first I wanted to be like you're crazy and then I realized her pain was real right and she was crying and she was saying you know if my dad wanted me to be able to do this he shouldn't have gotten me a pony when I was two that was her exact words and in that moment right I I promise you in that moment I went from wanting to laugh at her to suddenly feeling really bad for her because she didn't she was being honest she didn't know how to do anything by herself and he had effectively rented her like crippled because she had never done anything her own self and meanwhile me i was living like living with a boyfriend i was 14 i was kicked out you know like if i wanted to eat i had to have a job i've worked until i was 13 you know and so i've always been like i work 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 and she's just like i have to pay 70 25 uh, of my rent right now at the age of 22. Um, so that's kind of what I worry about this collective coddling because because we become so civilized and because we're able to provide so much for our kids that just because you can provide every little thing for your kids doesn't mean that you should provide every little thing for your kids. Yeah. One, one of the things that I've said about parenting is if you're helping your kids, you're hurting them. And the, the example that I use all the time is like, oh, helping your kids tie their shoes where hey, look, it's going to be faster if I do it. They're not going to cry. They're not going to whine. They're not going to complain. I'll just get down there and get it done. And I know I can do it in three seconds. And what are you doing to that kid? You're making them, un- they, they can't rely on themselves. You're actually hurting their fine motor skills because they're not developing their fine motor school- skills. They don't know how to fend for themselves. They they have a, a less, they have a, their opinion of themselves go down because they have to rely on you. So yes, across the board, absolutely. If you're helping your kids, if you're providing them with everything, then you're not helping them at all. You're actually hurting them. Right. So then, you, so you started writing these books that really just focus on just this. I want to talk about the small tasks, like cleaning a toilet. Mm-hmm. Right. What can you get out of cleaning a toilet? That's one of the things that you know when I when I showed up at the SEAL teams and just got done with the toughest military training in the world, and I was an elite commando. And the first mission I had when I got to the SEAL Team One was cleaning the toilets for sure. And what do you you, you know you you're humble. That's what happens. You get humbled, and that's probably. Besides needing the toilets cleaned, that's another reason when you show up at SEAL Team 1, you're going to clean toilets so that you realize, hey, look, there's, there's still – I need to be humble about all this. And just because I made it through some, some training doesn't mean I'm, I'm above doing hard things and things that, are, that seem like they're beneath you. 
So yeah, I mean, you, you definitely got to put your kids through challenging things if you want them to have any sort of resiliency in the world. Right. And and, it's, and I think it's about more than just humility when it comes to cleaning a toilet. Be able to, to complete a basic task, right? And it, this goes back to Jordan Peterson's whole idea of like, make your bed in the morning, right? It's a very simple, small thing, but make your bed in the morning before you leave. Um, it, it does something to your character. I'm very, I'm very big on like cleaning my room, but pre- Pre-Jordan Peterson, I didn't have to read a book to do it. I, you know, I really, because I had my parents shouting at me, had to clean my room and, and do all this stuff and tie my own shoes and all that stuff. It was more of about uh, survival and necessity and not wanting to get screamed at. Um, but it really it really does shape your character when you realize that these little things that you think are so small, racing out of the room, not setting, getting up a little bit earlier. So you have the time to make your bed. Um, it changes everything. And what's interesting is, and I know that you talk you talk a lot about, you get up really early, right? Uh, not that early. I mean, I get up at, at 4.30 in the morning. Not that early. Anybody hear that? He just said not that early, 4.30 <clears throat> in the morning. Completely crazy. Completely crazy. All right. <laughs> 4.30 in the morning is early by everybody's standards who has not been in the military. I'll tell you that, yeah. right? So yeah. 4.30 in the morning is an incredible time to get to get up. It's, it's an early time to get up. And I'm going to tell you what's interesting about that. I read an article about the habits. Um, they, they basically interviewed the most successful people in the world, a bunch of billionaires, maybe like 10 billionaires, mm-hmm. and tried to, from just the way they live their lives, figure out what things that they all had in common. And um, the number one thing was waking up early. All of them got up at like 4.30 in the morning. Yeah. And, you know, I get pushed back on that all the time. Uh, people tell me it's unhealthy. People – and there's books about how unhealthy it is. And, and, and you know, another thing is – and I, I put this out all the time. There's a single mom – there's single moms all over the place, single dads that are out there that are getting up at 3 o'clock in the morning so they can do their first shift at work in a diner somewhere as a waitress. When they get done with that, they're coming home, taking their kids to school. Then they're going off to their second job, doing whatever. And at night, they're doing their third job. So I have the luxury – I have the luxury of getting up early in the morning and I get up early in the morning and I work out and I have time for myself. That's a luxury for me. There's plenty of people that wake up earlier than that because they have to. And hopefully people that have that attitude over time, they'll be able to work themselves out of that position where they can actually get up because they want to. Right. What is, so what's your routine? You get up at 4.30 in the morning. I get up before four thirty in the morning, and I, I the first thing I do is work out. Mm-hmm. Right, I work out because if you for me, if I try working out, if I say I'll work out after work or this evening, what, what's going to happen? People are going to come and take that time away from you. Whether it's clients calling me, whether it's my companies that are someone at my companies or some kind of emergency going on there, or whether it's one of my kids that needs help with their homework or whatever the case may be. So I get up before other people so I can have that time. Like no one can take 4.30 in the morning away from you. And very rarely can people take 4.30 in the morning away from you. So that's, and if, and if that started getting taken away from me, I'd get up even earlier. It doesn't matter to me. That's so I wake up early in the morning, I work out, then I usually get done. I'll go and, you know, get my kids, see my kids off to school, and then I start working. Right. I actually think the the working out thing is actually really important. Um, having some sort of a physical activity, people don't realize how much that that was also on the list of all mm-hmm. of their successful habits. And they all got up and they all worked out, um, whether it was for 45 minutes in a treadmill, going for a run. I'm, I'm very into like running and anaerobic activity at the gym because there's something about like breaking a sweat that it just sets, it sets you in the right direction. Like it, it's, a, it's a major stress, stress relief. And we, we're seeing also, and this is definitely true, a society that is less and less active. People that are sitting on their butts all day because of, you know, our jobs obviously have moved in a different direction. A lot of people's jobs tend to be less physical, more or less physical than they were back in the day, I would say. Um, And I think that that has been – it's one of the biggest things that's contributed to people – 
feeling like they're too anxious and all, you got all these things that people are going through. And I'm like, if you just worked out every single day, I think it's one of the biggest things to maintain your mental health. Yeah. And it's not just theoretical that you're saying that there's actual physiological things that happen to your brain when you work out. There's endorphins that get released. There's blood flow that goes on up there. There's all kinds of things that happen that prove what you're saying is not just your opinion. It's actually scientific right. facts. Right. They don't like scientific <laughs> facts. Sci science is under attack right now. You can't have scientific facts. Um, and even, I mean, I, this you're gonna. This was crazy, but it was super controversial. I was, I, I was posting this. It wasn't joking. It was actually a serious list um, on my Instagram. I hardly ever post stories on my Instagram, but that day I was like, I'm going to give advice, like a Sunday advice column of just uh, women that you shouldn't date. And so I did a list of 10, 10, 10 things of like, it was because of Will Witt, you know, the, the 20, 22 year old that works here. He does these videos okay. and he was like having a really hard time dating in LA. And he uh -huh. came to me and he was like, you know, dating LA sucks. Like what kind of girl should I date? And I was like, I'm going to give this to the whole world. So I have this whole list of like just basic habits um, that you should just go, mm, I'm going to avoid that. Like, you know, has a, a small animal that she has to travel with for mental, you know, mental support animal. I'm like, mm, just avoid it. You know, if she, <laughs> she needs a, a pet to fly with, uh, maybe just stay away from it. And it kind of went in this vein. But the one that people got really upset about, even like it, really upset about was I said that, you know, if, if she, and this is again, talking about that age group of 18, 22 year olds, if she takes, um, you know, anxiety pills to deal with her anxiety. Um, and I said that because I'm a, a big believer that we are one of the most overprescribed nations in the entire world. And we are, it's the truth. We are actually factually one of the most overprescribed nations in the world and people don't know how to deal with um natural human emotions like anxiety sadness uh happiness like we we, we think that there's something wrong and i'm i'm very outspoken against the trend of like you know diagnosing something and putting a pill on it before you really kind of deal with the underlying issue of like am i dealing with a human emotion fear anxiety um anger sadness and we're suddenly in a society where people are like oh gotta have a pill for that i feel sad or gotta have a pill for that i, f I feel i feel fearful you know i feel anxiety. Um, and I was really blessed when I was young because I had a girl in college when I broke up with my boyfriend. I was crying hysterically and for like three days. And I'm not, <laughs> when I tell you, when I was 18, I thought it was the end of the world. For sure. End of the world. My first boyfriend. It's a little more right. raw. The first one's always like, oh my God, this is all over. So I couldn't get out of my dorm. My dad was so worried because he had never heard me cry like that. Like it was like gutturals. Ah! <laughs> so my dad got in a car and drove three hours. It was a guttural cry. So I can't even make that noise anymore. He drove three hours. He fixed me up. Up. Like, you know, my daughter's dying in her dorm and uh, we, we get back and he takes me to the doctor because he says something's wrong with my child. She's making strange animalistic noises, <laughs> mourning the death of a tragedy. And I get to the doctor. I tell him what's going on. I'm like, my boy even broke up. I'm depressed and sad. The first thing a doctor does is he prescribes me with Xanax. Right? Yeah. This, this will make you feel better. So I go, I get, I get my prescription of Xanax and I go back to school and I'm like, I got these pills now. And, um, there was a girl named Zoe. I will never forget her. She changed my life. And she said, I said, she said, well, oh, you, what are you doing? And I was like, well, I just got, you know, I, I'm back now. I got Xanax. She was like, oh, she's like, why did the doctor give you, why, why are you prescribed Xanax? And, and I was like, oh, cause I've been so sad. And she was like, why are you sad? And I said, because you know, me and so-and-so broke up. And she was like, okay. Um, so I, I tend to think that if you know the reason why you're sad, you don't need a pill. She's like, if you were just crying like that, like out of the blue, like walking down and then like, ah, there might be some, you know, chemical imbalance going on here. But if you know why you're sad, you don't need a pill for it. And I threw out all my pills that day and it, it changed my life. And it, that became my perspective that if I could answer the question why I'm feeling this certain way, why I'm scared, why I'm fearful, why I'm sad, um, I need to learn how to deal and build up the, the character to be able to deal with the emotion head on. Um, and people thought that was a not, you know, not too many people. It was like 10,000 out of two, a quarter million, but thought that was a bit controversial and said that some people just need to 
need pills for breakups. <laughs> yeah, that's that's, that's a tricky those, subject. It, it is a very tricky subject. And, you know, when I talk about and when I talk to people and, and you know, I get a lot of people that will write me and say, you know, I'm going through this hard time. And one of the things that I say about this is when people get in that mode of I don't know if depression is the right word because maybe that's a clinical term that I don't truly understand. But when people will use the word sad because that's what you were saying, when people get sad and they get caught in that storm and, and what I tell people is it's like there's a storm cloud all around their head mm. and it's moving with them. And so no matter which direction they look at, all they see is darkness. Mm -hmm. And anybody that is just outside that cloud, four feet away, you can say, hey, look, everything's fine. You just got to get over here. I'm sure your dad was looking at you going, hey, it's just a guy. <laughs> I mean, I've had that conversation with my daughters. You know, I said, like, listen, the girl that broke – the girls that broke my heart when I was – 13, 14, 16, 18, all those girls, I don't, I don't remember their names anymore. And of course, at the time, it was the biggest deal in the world. So you're going to get over it. But when they're caught in that storm, they're, everywhere they're looking, it looks bad. And, they, and that's, what, that's what makes them turn around and say, I need something. What you need to do is move forward, move towards the light, get, oh, get away from that cloud. And again, I get it that it's hard because it's, it's kind of following you. But it's, it's a scary thing. It's very hard to understand. And, you know, and, and I didn't really have much understanding at all of any of this stuff. Psychology, I always thought psychologists were just kind of voodoo, weird things, weird people, <laughs> weird ideas. I voodoo thought it doctors. Was, yeah, I thought it was like voodoo doctors. And it wasn't, you know, I've had Jordan Peterson on my podcast a couple of times. And, and just in talking to him, that's when I realized, oh, oh, so you have things happen to people like in life. And as a psychologist, you recognize the patterns of what happened to a particular person. You can tell them how to get out of that problem. And actually, one of them is in Warrior Kid books, one of the, the kid is he's scared of the water. And so they go through this, you know, first you're going to wade in the water. Then you're going to go to your knees. Then you're going to go to your head. And this takes place over weeks. Anyways, there's a name for this. It's called exposure therapy. And Jordan Peterson's telling me how you would get someone to overcome a fear. And I go, oh, yeah, I wrote about this in a kid's book. I had no idea what it was. But then I realized, oh, that's like one thing that I know. Well, as a psychologist, well, you're dealing with these problems all the time. Then you recognize a bunch of different patterns and you can have solutions. And what, you know, I, what I ended up saying was that what a psychologist is, is like a, like a mechanic for your brain. Like if you're something wrong with your car, you don't just keep going. You go, okay, I got to take it to the mechanic who can, knows how to fix that car. Okay, cool. That's what, that's what a, that's what a psychologist can do. And I think sometimes they prescribe medications that are helpful to some people. And hopefully, I, I agree with you. I don't think that's going to be a positive thing. I really, I, I think a lot of times that people are overprescribed. And I mean, when I was a kid, that's kind of when the whole Ritalin thing started, mm. when kids getting prescribed Ritalin. I'm so against that. And, and yeah, it's like, oh, and, and I would hear... Now I hear like symptoms of a kid that needs Ritalin and it's, you know, six year old. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Normal but, but, but can't sit still in class, uh, wants to what, wants to throw things, uh, wants to wants to wrestle with other kids. I'm like, oh, so he's a boy. He's a boy. Yeah. I, I'm like, I'm like, I literally like I know I'm not a doctor, but I think what you might be going through is you have a boy. Yeah. Right. Like I literally I, I babysat for someone in, in Rhode Island and she her kid was uh, eight years old and she's like, he has to take Ritalin. She's like, he doesn't he doesn't pay attention and math in school. He doesn't sit still. And I'm like, because he probably wants to be outside running around going, ah, yeah. that's what little boy, little boys have so much energy. They're like totally crazy. And then they kind of calm down, you know, yeah. but they, they have just the natural, ah, they don't want to, I don't want to sit 
right now and sit down and study math equations. You know, that's normal, especially for a kid yeah. who, who's, who's – their kids are supposed to be hyper. Your kid isn't hyperactive. Your kid is a kid. All kids are hyperactive. I, I mean, I babysat. I'm telling you, little boys, they got something else. It's like another another layer of energy that the little girls will have. Like, what is he doing right now, right? And they just don't stop. And then they then they die yeah. for nap time. <laughs> and they recharge and they're right Both. back to yeah, yeah. And they're right back out. And so that that really bothers me. I'm like, so you have um sad. You have um boy, right? Yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah, like, I'm yeah. not a doctor. Don't follow my advice. But I'm not a doctor, but I just I've seen this before. Yeah, I, I know. And it's you know, I was on a I was on a podcast with Joe Rogan and and it was the day that Chris Cornell killed himself, the the singer of Soundgarden. Mm. And, you know, of course, we, we were just talking. And, of course, when you're talking on Joe Rogan's podcast, then millions of people are going to hear it. But we just opened the conversation. We were just talking about it. And it's, you know, it's one of those things where, look, I'm not a psychologist. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know about these things. And, you know, what Joe Rogan and I were going back and forth saying was like, oh, you should work out. You should do jujitsu because that's what we think. Because that's what that's what makes Joe Rogan feel good. That's what makes me feel good. Right. That's what makes you feel it's good. An opinion. And so to sit there and say, "Hey, look, hey," and you know, and and then I had Tim Ferriss on my podcast, and Tim Ferriss, who's a well, obviously a really smart guy. He was at Princeton. He was you know getting ready to graduate from Princeton, and he not only did he contemplate suicide, he plotted it out and was going to do it. And it was just by a lucky incident that his mom figured out what was going on and kind of helped him. But people can really have these issues. And, you know, I definitely don't think I'm qualified to, to talk about it or to give, to give any sort of advice other than everyone, Joe, Tim, who has actually lived through this and what Tim said, get out of your mind, get into your body, Mm. like go and swing a kettlebell, go outside and go for a run. This is Tim I Ferriss that. saying that stuff. And you know, mind, he's a guy body. that, look, I don't claim to have this understanding, but he, he did. And, and, and he went through that and that was able to, that was something that really helped him out. So again, I'm no professional, but. Me neither. Man's- Disclaimer, I'm not a professional. I, I just, I just say, I hope, I, I hope maybe if there is a girl out there who was like me, mm-hmm. who just needed one girl to say something, one sentence that made perfect sense, made, you know, and I was like, eh, you're right, I want to start this like weird thing of like having to pop pills, deal with this, and then I, guess what, because you know what, the pill wasn't going to make the sadness go away. No. Maybe it would have off, you know, off put a little bit, but eventually I was going to still have the same predicament, and you know, and this is not like a, this example is not apply to everything, but you know, sometimes trying to differentiate whether or not you're just going through something that's normal, um, and that you're going to have to learn to cope with at some point, because that wasn't like we were suddenly going to get back together if I popped the pill. Um, I think that it's good to have that that perspective and to, to, to have that, you know, take on things. And, and if you're a person who was like me, who just needed to hear the perspective, then great. If you're not that person and, you know, you you, you think something else is going on, then please ignore me. That's why I ignore me. This is just my opinion in my life that I, I share when I do my podcast. You know, I'm not a psychiatrist yet. Yes. Yeah. But I well, did take Citrus Psycho. Yeah. I did have some of your drink here. Yes. Citrus Psycho. I'm Citrus Psycho, not a psychiatrist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. I think you're right, though. It is important that if the only people that you ever see are people that are recommending you to take a bunch of pills, maybe it is good to hear from someone that says, hey, maybe tr- try looking outside of your window and going for a run. And I, it sounds so trite. You know, and I've had people, believe me, you, you know the deal that, well, actually, you know better than anybody about how people react to things that you say sometimes. And it sounds really trite to say, you know, oh, you're depressed, go out for a run. 
Look, I get like the same thing you're saying. I'm not saying that's going to be a solution to your problem, but may- maybe it'll make you feel a little bit better today. Right, right. Give it right. a shot. And normalizing also just like what it, yeah, what it's like even like I always now that I just turned 30 and I tell everybody that I'm so happy I turned 30. Like I would not like the whole concept of like your 20s are so fun. No, it's one big anxiety trap, okay? It is. It's like you don't know what you're doing, you don't know what you're going to do with your career, you don't know if you're going to meet the person you're supposed to marry. Like it's just one big what am I in this world? Cuz you're no longer like a student, you're no longer in school, you're no longer under your parents. You're supposed to be an adult and a real person. You got figure out how to pay bills and all of this stuff so like the 20s is like horrible like and i so when i see a 20 year old and they're freaking out i'm like yeah i felt that just so you know it does get better that's normal if you're feeling all of this weird anxiety because you feel like you don't know where your life is going that is normal don't let somebody tell you that's abnormal it's the feeling that you're abnormal feeling like you're the only one that feels this way that sometimes makes people feel like oh i gotta like you know go to a doctor because i'm odd and i'm like no 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 no. me and all my friends were like what the heck am i doing and then i turned 30 and suddenly Everything was sort of figured out, and I was like, oh, okay, cool. I like 30s right now. I'm yeah. digging the 30s. Similar similar to how I feel about vets coming home, transitioning to the civilian sector, and sometimes they think, I'm the only one that feels like I miss the mission. I miss the job. I miss the guys I was with. It's like, no, almost every single person that was in the military feels that way, mm-hmm. and it's totally normal, and what you need to do is find a new mission. So, yeah, there's a lot of similarities there that w- when you get to hear from somebody that's been through that, and you go, oh, yeah, I went through that too. Yep, it's all normal. It's all good. That That's helpful for sure. So what would you say, like, how do you, how do I wrap you up? Like, what would you say is your is your overarching goal? My over- Yeah, what's your goal? Like, with all of this, making making these books, all of these, and, and having young kids come up to you and say, you know what, thank you so much for giving me um, this perspective of just diligence, you know, working hard and all of this stuff. What 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 is your, what is going to be your impact? Yeah, I mean, for, for me, it's just trying to help people out. You know, I, I was really lucky to learn some really good lessons along the way, you know, spending all that time in military, leading troops in combat. And, you know, what started off that my, all my first books were, and my most recent book is about leadership for adults. And I have one book called Discipline Equals Freedom, which is about just like my own personal operating system inside my brain, because people would ask me, what do you think when you wake up? What do you think when you're going through a workout? What do you think when you got to do something you don't want to do? They ask me all those questions all the time. And so finally, I just wrote them down and said, this is what I'm thinking about. And, and so again, if you can show someone down the path that that you had to kind of fight to get through down this path, but now there's a little trail cleared behind you, might as well show it to them. And so I would say my goal is just to help people out as much as possible by sharing some of the lessons that I learned. A lot of them I learned the hard way. And it would be nice if people didn't have to learn those lessons the same difficult manner that I did. Amen, Jocko. <laughs> That's what I'm always saying. You don't want to do what I did. You don't want to do what I did. So let me just try to show you where the booby traps are. All right. A little bit of that. All right. Well, this was amazing. I can't, I can't wait to get these signed by you because you're not getting them back. Um, and uh, they're for me, right? They are for you. Okay, I good. guess they are. They sure. are now. Apparently. <laughs> exactly right. You just imposed yourself on I did, all my books. I, did. We'll I, I, I really want to read these. Um, um, all right, guys, definitely go out and buy his books. Drink the Citrus Psycho. I'm, I'm all <laughs> amped up on Citrus Psycho right now, guys. Um, and we're going to wrap this episode the way that we do every every episode, which is you get to look into uh, this camera and you're going to leave uh, a voice message, a face message for the world. Just if, if you could impart advice on to um, everyone in the world and something that would hopefully help them, what would you say? Um, we're going to put uh, some time on the clock. Where's the clock? Don't look at it. I'll make you oh, nervous. Don't okay. make yourself nervous. Don't Come worry. On, I'm right? not going to get nervous. <laughs> we'll be okay. We'll survive. <laughs> yeah, we will. On your mark, get set, world, I give you Jocko Willink. So actually, this is actually a pretty simple question for me. You asked me what important things, what important messages I want to leave. Well, I wrote books about them. The first book is called Extreme Ownership. What that means is take ownership of everything that's going on in your world. Take responsibility for what you do. If something goes wrong, take ownership of it and fix it. 
That's number one. Number two book, Discipline Equals Freedom. That's right. The more discipline that you have in your life, the more freedom that you will end up with. That's something you can live by every day. The next one is the dichotomy of leadership. And what that means is you have to stay balanced. Don't go to an extreme in one direction or the other in anything in life. Stay balanced. And then the most recent book I wrote is called Leadership Strategy and Tactics. And the, one of the underlying themes in there is stay humble. And if you stay humble, you're going to understand people better. You're going to understand yourself better. And you're going to be able to do better things in the world. There's my two minutes. Amen. And that's a wrap. That was awesome. That was so fun. Thank you. Yeah, you got a lot. I mean, it's just really interesting. Thank you guys for watching the latest episode of The Candace Owens Show. I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. As many of you guys already know, PragerU is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, which means we need your help to keep all of our content free to the public. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation today. I would really appreciate your support.